Now playing movie reviews in 20 cues. Hola a todos and welcome to the podcast, Movie Reviews in 20 Cues, the show where we review a movie by asking 20 weird and wonderful questions about it. I am your host, Sam Hurley, and I am joined this week by, well, let me start it. Let me let me rewind a bit. I've heard you guys' complaints. I've heard about you all mocking me and saying, why don't you get on some actual proper critics? Why don't you get on some people that actually know what they're talking about? You know, like add a bit of class to this podcast. And I've heard you guys. I've heard you guys. I've gone out and got probably the two classiest uh, podcasters, women, people in the entire world. The first of which is Rossa. Now, Rossa is obviously um, just awesome. But yeah, we've been chatting on Twitter for a while, been sort of Twitter friends. Very excited to have you on. Welcome, Rosa. How are you? Oh, my God. Uh, now I have to live up to that intro. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for inviting me. Um, uh, hopefully it goes well. And thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Oh, I'm so excited, Rosa. I'm so excited. I know it's going to go well. I know I've got faith in you. Otherwise, I wouldn't have invited you guys on. But yeah, no pressure. No pressure whatsoever. Um, so, Rosa obviously has started a podcast recently called The Latinx Lens. And half of that podcast, or the other half of that podcast, is Kat. How are you, Kat? How are you doing? Hi, y'all. I'm good. And I'm so excited to be here, too. And thanks for having me. And that intro was definitely, I don't, I don't know either if I'm going to live up to that. <laughs> There was so many nice things. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I love it. I love making people feel incredibly awkward when I'm about to record a podcast. It's like the best thing. It's the best thing you can do, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, you guys, are like like with every guest that we get on the show, you guys picked Pan's Labyrinth. Do you guys want to chat through the thought process behind that as to why you guys wanted to pick that film? We were going to go with Selena. <laughs> Our, oh our, wow yeah um <laughs> but we were like well we've already talked about it a lot and um i i don't know we were, we just wanted to kind of do something different and then i love guillermo del toro and um so does rosa and then i was like oh how about pan's labyrinth i haven't i used to watch it a lot when i was younger but i haven't seen it in a in a in a while so i just i really wanted to um watch it again and i i'm not sure how uh, rosa feels but yeah we we kind of discussed it and it was i'm happy with our choice <laughs> Yeah, we just discussed it, went back and forth, and we ended up just picking Pants Labyrinth. I haven't seen it as much. I just recently watched it for the first time a few months ago. Um, and just right now, I just finished watching it. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited to talk about this. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, so if people haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth and are trying to listen along to the podcast anyway, I'm just going to hit you guys with a quick plot. Uh, it's set in Spain in 1944, and it follows a bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer who escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. Yeah, it came out in 2006, as mentioned, directed by Guillermo del Toro, has a score of 8.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, usually we typically give our scores at this point, but uh, we've figured out that it's probably better to give our scores after our first question, which is the compliment sandwich, which is when we go through one thing good, one thing bad, and one thing good about this film. And then we give our scores out of 10,000 fawns this week. It'll be out of 10,000 fawns. <laughs> so, Kat, why don't you lead us off? What is your compliment sandwich? Alternatively, if you want to give this movie a score under 5,000, you can give it a shit sandwich, which is one thing bad, one thing good, <laughs> one thing bad. But I kind of don't think that's going to happen, so don't even know why I'm talking right now. Go, Kat. Yeah, so it was actually really hard to find one bad thing. So I did an amazing story. And just in the sense of an audience kind of reaction, I said uh, I, the bad would be unforgivingness in terms of the the plot, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I just I I, I don't know. I love this movie so much, but um, and then the last one would be amazing cinematography. It's just I mean, obviously, I won the Oscar for it, so it's it's just amazing. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Rosa? 
Um, I also had the same issue. I don't think I could <laughs> was able to find anything wrong with this film. Um, I thought of uh, good acting. Um, although I do have a controversial opinion about this, but we'll get to that later on as one of the good things. Uh, one of the bad things. <laughs> I think that that's exactly the bad thing that I can't find a bad thing about this one. <laughs> I don't know if I can do that or not. I think I just did. Oh, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, the other good thing is just, oh my God, I'm just going to probably be echoing a lot of what Kat is saying. The story is just an amazing story. And I thought it was brilliant that it took uh, place in a, in a war film. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm with you guys. I completely agree with what you guys are saying. Uh, first good thing. Yeah, the acting performances are phenomenal. Yeah, I've got to talk about a little bit more about that later. But like, just from start to finish, there's not a single person in this film that sort of drags it down at all. The bad thing for me is... Some of the CGI is a little bit ropeable in parts. Mm, like, yeah. like I think the bullfrog and there was like the, um, like the, uh, like whatever it is, like the bug that was crawling over Ophelia's hand at one point. I remember just being like looking at it and going, that's a little bit ropeable. But, <laughs> but at the same time, this is incredibly nitpicky. Acknowledging that the film is from 2006, you're not going to get like the level that we get now. And that being said, like flipping it onto this good thing was just the use of practical effects. Like seeing how they brought the fawn to life. Um, cause I've watched so many videos after watching this movie. I've watched so many behind the scenes videos and everything that I'm literally overflowing with knowledge about Pan's Labyrinth at the <laughs> moment. But yeah, like just the use of practical effects is just is something that Guillermo del Toro does really well. And he does awesomely in this film. And yeah, I'm, I'm holding it back, but I want to hear you guys go first. What do you guys, what are you going to score this out of 10,000? I, I mean, 9,999. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I'm only going to do the little, the one out just because I don't think a film can be perfect, perfect. And like you meant, you just reminded me of the effects, but I kind of thought like for 2006, it was pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So that's just, yeah, I, I, it's nearly a perfect film. And when I saw it again, it holds up. It feels like it could have been made in 2020 as well. And it's so, it's still so relevant and so good. So it's a very timeless movie, I think. Wow. What do you got, Rosa? Can you beat that? Uh no I can't I'm actually gonna <laughs> give it a a, a not nine thousand and five hundred not not entirely up there uh you'll probably find out why uh later on but yeah ninety five still still incredibly high school yeah um, yeah yeah I mean I mean I've been holding this back this is easily within my top twenty films of all time so this is nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine as well <laughs> I'm right there with you can't yeah. <laughs> It's same thing, like, like there's only one film that's potentially a 10,000 for me. I mean, there's a couple of films that are a million out of 10,000, but that's just ridiculous hyperbole. Um, yeah, <laughs> but this is, this is, yeah, legitimately one of my favorite movies of all time. I was so excited to do this. As soon as you guys suggested it, I was like, I'm so there. This is perfect. Uh, anywho, that moves us over to our second question, which is the first of our Patreon questions. This question comes courtesy of Julio of the Contrarians podcast, a podcast in which they rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. So they take films that are universally beloved, such as this film, and basically talk about how it's rubbish. They then spend the second half of their podcast basically giving their honest thoughts about this film. So anyway, <laughs> what is question number two there, Kat? What's your most controversial opinion about this film? Oh, Rosa, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> um, my most controversial opinion, it's going to be my least favorite performance, is actually from that little girl. <laughs> oh! Um, <laughs> Yeah, she, I don't know, there's just something that I, 
which a lot has to do why I gave it 9,500. Granted, everybody else around her, they just giving out great performances, like nothing below, below perfect, almost perfect performances. So she's probably my least favorite performance in that film. That is controversial. Holy hell. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, well done. I, it's some hate, but it's okay. I, I, I yeah, think, yeah, nah, well done. I like that. Uh, for me, this movie's been named wrong. Like, I, I realize that the, the Spanish uh, name for this, our Labyrinto del Forno, makes complete sense. The Labyrinth of the Fawn. That makes absolute sense. Why is it called Pan's Labyrinth? Who the hell is Pan? The Fawn's never identified as named Pan. Who the hell is Pan? Again, nitpicking. That's the best I can come up with. <laughs> that's so funny well my husband he's from uh like i mentioned he's from Colombia, and i was telling him like oh like sometimes we have those things of what was this named you know because he's like sometimes he doesn't know that this like the the ones i grew up with and he's like oh well it's because they go by different names and sometimes it doesn't make any sense like the translations <laughs> the, the, yeah. the explanation of like it's just i don't know who who comes up with those translations it's so um, true. Well, like, like as I said, bursting with knowledge behind this, I know Guillermo del Toro turned down like money to actually film the film in English to have them like speaking English the entire time. So I feel like the movie company's taking it out of his hands and gone, okay, Labyrinth was a really popular movie. Let's just put Pan in front of it. People know what a Pan is. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine yeah. is not necessarily about the film, but maybe about the reception. Is I think it should have been nominated and won Best Picture and Best Director at the Oscars, and it wasn't nominated for either of those. And I think that is a big mistake because I went back and looked at who won, and it was just I think it was De- The Departed, which is also a very good film. But I don't know. I think it was there's so many of the gangster movies, and this one was just so original in some ways and so well executed. And it's a travesty that it wasn't nominated at all for that. Literally the other thing I wrote down, that was my other answer to this one was how the hell did this not win best picture, best director, et cetera, et cetera. I did, like I, I like the departed. I think it's a really good film. I feel like that was the Academy going, Holy hell, hell have we never given Martin Scorsese an Oscar? We better give him one this year. You know what I mean? So yeah. yeah. Cool. And that moves over to question number three. What is it there, Verosa? Yes. The question is, what deep philosophical debate arose in you during this film? This is kind of horrible, but would the captain have really have let that stuttering man go if he'd been able to do the Uno Dos Trace? Because like, yeah. he sort of makes out that he's going to, but you know he's an absolute jackass. There's no way he was going to let that guy go. No way. Yeah, that's true. I think you're you're right. Mine, I guess, was a little, I don't know. I think I liked the question about if you believe in something, does it make it real? Because I think she, in order to kind of escape this world, she, you know, she makes up something and she really believes it. And it's also just so sad. But I can, I've never been in a place where I've been, been in, in such horrible circumstances. So um, who am I to say that you can't think something's real, right? Unless it's like harming other people. But um, I don't know. I think that's a question uh, for for good and bad <laughs> is what I yeah. came up with. I love it, Kat. I love how quite often we just have surface level and you've gone very deep. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got you guys on here. <laughs> um, for me, it would probably, again, because I'm in the medical field, so I'm going to probably be more emphasized on the doctor and go into probably like medical ethics. And um, I know I'm going completely off tangent with this, but... No, this is uh, good. <laughs> no like as a doctor like what to like what it, what are the limits or what do you, when do you stop or when don't you stop like just treating people regardless of what they're doing out there it's more of an ethical um question issue than it is of a just philosophical so to speak 
I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. It's good. And that moves us over to our the next of our Patreon questions. This question comes courtesy of the amazing man that is Dave Baker. Dave has his own Patreon as well, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash your favorite. Now, Dave, this is kind of a hard question this week because, mm, oh, we'll get into it. We'll get into it soon. But basically what Dave would like to know is which two characters from this film would you guys want to hang out with you at your house party? <laughs> so I think I would choose Mercedes. She's unfortunately always... Uh, sad in this one for good reason i mean it's not a good place to be but i feel like she would let loose if she was like in a good spot having a good time i feel like she would be drinking you know and like letting loose um and then the fauna because i mean it would just be a conversation starter <laughs> and, he, and he would probably i would just love to see him with a with a drink in his hand and be like woo. <laughs> uh, i'm gonna cut in before you rosa i don't know if i've got sheer screen on or something but there's my answer as well I literally, I literally had both. I was like, Mercedes, she looks, she's delightful and caring. And you could tell she'd like rip it up if she got half the chance. Yes. And the fawn, I mean, could you imagine going to a house party and there's a full blown mythological creature there? You'd be like, well, this is the best party I've ever been to. These people are packy, man. This is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You guys took one of mine, which was El, El Fauno, the fawn. And then um, I picked the doctor. You know, you may never know if you may need one or not. Yeah. So, you get you hung over, he can give you an IV <laughs> and keep you going. Exactly. He's also got a ton of antibiotics. Oh, I'm not going to get into that. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but if you injure yourself, if you happen to pick up some sort of injury, um, yeah. He'd, he'd be yeah there exactly, to take yes. Yeah, he's great. He's great. Okay, so what other two films could totally from an, form an unofficial trilogy with this film? Definitely Tigers Are Not Afraid. Oh, man. A film, I think that came out last year in the U.S. from Isita Lopez. And a lot of the magical, fantastical um, elements are in this film, also involving children. But in this case, it, their, their setting, it's also a war, but it's in Mexico and it's the war against drug cartels and all that good stuff. So it's definitely out there. And then my next film would be Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Again, <laughs> Monsters and Kids. <laughs> And I think that one was produced by Guillermo del Toro. So um, a lot of these monsters do remind me of a lot of these uh, monsters in this film in Pan's Labyrinth. So yeah, Tigers Are Not Afraid and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought about the Guillermo del Toro answer of just Devil's Backbone and Shape of Water, but sort of pushed that aside. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with two that share similar themes, but are a lot less violent. Basically, I'm going to go with Wizard of Oz, which is kind of set around roughly the same time. And if that's happening over in America and this is happening in Spain, then I want something happening in Japan. So I'm going to go with the animated film A Spirited Away, which is also, again, as a uh, young girl dealing with mythological creatures. So, yeah. So nice. I had Sucker Punch because it, it is dealing with, you know, the, the girls who get... Um, who who also use like escapism and they f form their own stuff and um it is a little bit uh I love uh, Zack Snyder so and he is like kind of I think in the same I wouldn't say I think Guillermo del Toro's work is very different from his work but I think they have sort of the same like they think on they think outside the box which I really love and then I went like two on the nose but I think it it, it fits some ways is the labyrinth <laughs> from the eighties oh, yeah. um because I I love like like an evolution of um like the creature designs and just there was also a, a girl with a baby so <laughs> I, I, sure. I think it could it could uh it could go in there and then i guess the fawn could be the equivalent of david bowie's character <laughs> <laughs> the fawn probably has the same size cod piece so yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah no that's great yeah good answers uh moves over to yes. question number six which is also a patreon question 
which comes courtesy of the amazing woman that is Emily Higgins. Emily's actually going to be on our podcast next week. But yeah, if you haven't heard Emily's podcast, she basically takes two films, one that's universally beloved, and then she sort of compares it to another one that she feels didn't get the love it's deserved, and probably because it usually doesn't deserve the love it deserved, hence why the name Tasteless. And uh, yeah, she basically compares them. And what would Emily like to know there, Rosa? Which side character would make for the best spin-off movie? Uh, anyone that knows me knows that I love my sort of like Django Unchained style films about people on the run or Bonnie and Clyde type stories, uh, people on the run getting their revenge. So I want the Pedro and Mercedes story. I want to see what happens to them after this mm. film finished. And, you know, like, sure, they're doomed, like the rebellion is doomed. We know what happened to Spain. But I still want to see that, you know, rebel slash um, revenge story. So I did have Mercedes, but I also said, um, since you took that one, the baby brother, because I think it would be cool to see like 20 years later, you know, the history that Mercedes and um, her brother told him. And then maybe, I don't know, just just him learning about the history of what happened and maybe going into another fantastical world. And maybe we learn that it's not made up, that it was actually real. So that would be kind of cool to explore that. God damn it. That's way better than my answer. Well done. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you guys both uh, stole mine, so I'm just going <laughs> to go with the obvious one, the fawn. I want to see where either prequel or sequel, what happens after, or how, or his his story, um, where mm-hmm. he came from, and if it is real. I, well, we'll get into that later. <laughs> but yeah, I want to know about him. Yeah, he's good as well, because he's he just seems dodgy. Like, there's just something off about him. Like, yeah. he, he just seems too friendly, I guess is the best way to describe him. Like, hey, how are you? It's just like... And even one of the people says to him, you never trust a fawn. Like, you're not supposed to trust fawns. <laughs> yeah, he's dodgy. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and yeah, that moves me over to question number seven. This is also a Patreon question. This question comes courtesy of the amazing man that is Dan Brennick. Dan is one half of the Netflix and Swill podcast that covers all things Netflix. So basically what Dan would like to know, if we were the head of Netflix and we were making this film, producing this film, et cetera, et cetera, when would you have dropped the first trailer for it? And like maybe even what time of the year, that type of stuff. What do you guys got? I think for this one, it's very like summer blockbustery. I, I, I'm sure it was probably released in the fall. I'm not sure, but if I were, if it was like a Netflix marketing movie, I would do a f- very small tease a year before, so we could definitely ha- feel that long wait and be excited for it. Because <laughs> I know they're notorious for just dropping movies without even doing anything, but <laughs> I think they would probably know that this one is going to be a winner, and I would just want like a picture, maybe just like the intro kind of tease a year before it releases. Excellent. What about you, Rosa? Wow. I went with four months <laughs> because I'm not a very patient person. So I don't want to um, put out a trailer so uh, far ahead and then people just forget about it or, or anything like that. But I think four months, I had three, but I think four is best for me. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I've actually shortened the time frame a bit. Again, bursting with knowledge, like Del Toro actually turned down a ton of other like massive Hollywood films because he was coming off the back of Blade 2 and Hellboy, um, Devil's Backbone obviously was a little bit before it, but he was like basically turning down all these sort of films. He got offered um, Chronicles of Narnia, which also involves a fawn in a cupboard, yeah. which is quite surprising. <laughs> but yeah, basically got offered all these films. So kind of got a hot director. But at the same time, I would have probably put it out like a trailer about two months before mm-hmm. Halloween but sort of released it after Halloween, but yet before Christmas, try to get in that sort of that time frame of like getting the Halloween crowd because this is very much a horror film, but at the same time, it's like a well-shot, well-fought, well-directed, like Oscar-bait film sort of thing. So it's like it's trying to walk that fine line between the two and get as many views on the screen, basically. So, 
Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So cool. um, number eight is who's the real unsung hero of this movie? <laughs> I put the doctor because again, <laughs> oh my God, I went into medical ethics again. Um, <laughs> I probably would have done the same thing he did. And, and him helping the, uh, the other side was probably what he felt best. And I also probably would have done the same thing. So to me, it was the doctor. <laughs> yeah, he's a great choice. He was on my short list. I, I like the way he just, he knew what he was doing and he just stood up to the guy and then just walked out of there. Like he had no illusions as to what was going to happen to him, but he just walked yeah. out of there like a boss anyway. He was just like, yeah. yep. Uh, yeah. The one for me was the two little fairies that stop Ophelia from trying to eat the grapes, but then they both sacrificed themselves so that she could get away. They, you know, yeah. they'd like slowed down the pale man. Like those two were like legends for me. Like they were smarter than she was to a point that one of my controversial opinions was that she should have just opened up the door, sent the fairies in to get the dagger and then just basically just, you know, close the door after them. She didn't even need to go in there. She was an idiot. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's a little girl. Um, yeah. You know, Spanish, Spain, war. Come on. You're expecting too I know. much them. <laughs> Grapes as well. Grapes are like the most, you know, <laughs> teasing fruit of all the fruits. I guess mine's not a real unsung hero, but I just, I love Mercedes in this. I think she was a total badass. And if it wasn't for her, like, I don't, I don't know. I think she, she, she just really like stuck it to the captain. And then she, she went into that field knowing that maybe there was like some hope that they were going to save her or maybe not, but like still was like, I'm going to still stab you with my little knife <laughs> and she was going to go down blazing. So I love her as a character. So um, I think she was the real hero of the movie. I loved the, like the teasing edits and the absolute payoff of that, of just like those constant shots of her folding her knife into her mm -hmm. apron. I was like, this is so going to work. This is so going to come back. This is going to be awesome. And it was. <laughs> nice. Next question. Yep. What flavor pizza is this movie? I don't want to make you guys move to New Zealand, given how much stuff is going on at the moment. <laughs> but um, but we have a thing in New Zealand called dessert pizzas. They're quite common at pizzerias, where it's basically a pizza that's just covered in like ice creams and fruits and all things sugary. And the reason why I'm saying that this flavor, this pizza is a like an ice cream or a dessert pizza, basically, is because. It's delicious, but if you have too much of it, man, it makes you feel sick in the stomach. And there's some scenes in this that literally make you feel sick in the stomach. Like, oh, the hell am I watching? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a good comparison. Um, mm. So I actually haven't had this pizza, but I was just thinking it would, it sounds really delicious and it kind of would class it up. Um, and I think this Pan's Labyrinth really does a lot for like the horror genre and like just a bunch of different subgenres. And so my favorite pizza is pepperoni and jalapeno. So very satisfying, very good. But then I'm going to add truffle on top because then that just makes it a little elevated. <laughs> so I feel like that's how I feel about this movie. And then also you can't have too much of it because, I mean, it's, uh, truffles are quite, uh, really expensive and all that. So it's also a unique thing. That is one classy pizza. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I'll be honest. I had a lot of difficulty with this question because there's so many pizzas out there. Uh, but the only thing I was able to come up with was extravaganza. <laughs> It's a pizza that has pretty much a little bit of everything in there. Mm. And that's exactly how I feel about this film. Fantasy, horror, drama, um, it, it, just suspense, thrilling, everything. It's in this film. So, yeah, Stravaganza. That's a good Excellent. one. <laughs> yeah, that absolutely makes sense. 
Cool, and that moves us down to the last of our questions that can be applied to any film before we get into our three personal questions. And the last question is, what scene from this film do you guys think will last with you the longest? I think the captain shooting Ophelia, because he just, like, you still think there's a little bit of hope. Um, And then when he just comes up to her, takes the baby... And then just shoots her and you, and you see Ophelia's face and, and then, you know, you get the gist because they don't show the actual like bullet going through or anything, which they didn't need to. That was heartbreaking because I think in some ways it was always going to end like that because even if she hadn't taken the baby or whatever, like she was a woman in fascist Spain. So <laughs> I think it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. going to be a good life for her. So I think it was just a lot of heartbreak. And that one, yeah, that one was pretty brutal because he, he doesn't hesitate at all. He just goes and shoots her. Yeah, it is yeah. a briefless. great answer. Yeah, so mine would be, it's more of a sequence of scenes. It's like three scenes. Um, and it's the one where Ophelia is telling the story to her unborn sibling. And you see her laying down in her stomach. And then it goes to the image of the baby um, in the womb. And then it goes to the following scene with the rosebud that's um, like growing out. Uh, me, I guess, as a, as a mother myself, it kind of hit me. Because, yeah, kids can can hear and they do listen and they do they start learning when you're, they're inside a woman. I just thought it was a sweet scene. <laughs> One of the <laughs> sweet scenes in that film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think that was a, is, that's probably the one that will stay with me. Yeah. This, this is just too obvious because, um, I mean, I've been having nightmares about this dude for like the last 14 years. It's, it's the pale man scene. Oh, yeah. the pale man scene. It's the, the, the bit where the eyeballs go into his hands Ooh. and then he just puts them on his head and then he's just chasing after it. That, oh, I like, I legitimately have dreamt about him twice this week and both of those dreams woke up, <laughs> resulted in me waking up and grabbing my wife screaming, pale man! <laughs> <laughs> And her just going like, the what? The what? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, she was like that the first time. The second time, she was like, you're not watching any more horror films. <laughs> I was like, no. But I love them. Yeah, that's an iconic yeah. one. Yeah. It is. It's absolutely. Yeah. Um, anywho, that moves us over to our personal questions, which are three questions that we thought of while we were watching this film and that we don't necessarily have to answer ourselves, but we can if we want. First up is this week is, Kat, why don't you tell us what your questions are? So I think I might know what your answers are, but um, what was your favorite creature design in this one? Since there was a few. Yeah, mine was Elfano. Yeah, his just love everything about him. And of course, Doug Jones has a lot to do with, um, and he plays <laughs> both the fun and the pill man. Um, <laughs> just the, his his body, his his physique, it's certainly made for, for these creatures. And yeah, the fun and, and just the, the way it's built, his face, he has such a memorable face and, and just his body, the, the, I don't even know, all the legs of whatever. Yeah, I mean, like as much as Power Man gave me nightmares, the fawn as well. He's probably my favorite character. It's funny you bring up the legs because that's the only part of his that was covered in like that green screen material to have them edited out. So he actually stood on a pair of fawn legs to, yeah. to actually like move them around and stuff. And they were like, you know, the bit sticking out. They just basically edited out his normal legs. And <laughs> yeah, took him five hours to get into that costume. I, as I said, I'm overflowing with information. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he couldn't hear anything inside of it. Uh, he learnt his lines in Spanish so that he Spanish. could reply to the, uh, actors and actresses around him. And yeah, just phenomenal, just phenomenal work by him inside that outfit. But yeah, it's just, just great. Can I change my answer from the unsung hero to, uh, Doug Jones? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? Yes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. 
I can't imagine. Like I'm nervous bladder. I need to be like in the toilet every 45 minutes. I can't imagine spending five hours putting a costume on. That'd be insane. Oh yeah. Oh my god. Um, and I agree with you guys. So I, that's all I'm gonna say because it's just <laughs> it's just such a um. I don't know. It's so crazy to, I think in this world where there's been so many movies and so many CGI, so many characters that it's really hard to do something unique. And that one still is very unique in its own right. And that's pretty awesome. But that's also Guillermo del Toro because he, a lot of his movies have so many unique characters. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Like I mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia before, like they've got a fawn in that. But if you see the fawn in that, it's literally some dude yeah. wearing some crappy Halloween costume. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does not hold up well. This one holds up super well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, he made a good choice. Um, so what did the labyrinth mean to you, um, whether you can interpret what you think it meant in the film or just to you? To me, it was just a world to escape in. It was a probably an imaginary world where I would just go and uh, just pretty much get lost and, and try to forget about what's going on in the real world. So it's just an escapism for me. Uh, I may be wrong or not. I, not, I hope I'm not overanalyzing this. But <laughs> yeah, just probably uh, somewhere to go escape. And we all have our own little war. I mean, to me, as a mom, there really isn't much where I can go. But when I go to the restroom <laughs> and just lock myself in there, that's just my escapism right there. And <laughs> even then, I still get called out of it. So, yeah, the, the labyrinth to me, it's more of a, just somewhere to go and escape. Just imagining a sign on your door that says Rose's Labyrinth now. <laughs> I know. Yes. I'm going to put that on my door now. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, it was very much the same. Like, um, like it is, it's this fantasy world. It's almost like a self-defense mechanism to take her out of the reality of the world that she's sitting in. I also felt it was sort of like a, almost a transition from childhood to adulthood because like on one hand, it's a labyrinth and it's like, you know, sort of like a kid's game slash puzzle type thing. But at the same time, as soon as she's there, she's just bestowed on these like responsibilities of like other people mm-hmm. telling her what to do. You know, it's like, you've got to go do this. You've got to do that. You've got to go do this. I feel like it's almost like that sort of transitional piece between the two worlds, I guess. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Does think, it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, it does. Excellent. For me, it just meant, it just means like you can go into the labyrinth. I don't know. Sometimes maybe the labyrinth seems like a better choice because your outside reality world doesn't seem very good and you want to stay lost because you yeah. don't want to figure out, uh, you don't want to have the answer because sometimes that answer means like, I don't know, you might not want to face it. So. I think it, it's just such a good uh, metaphor for life in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and um, last question for me was, what were your emotions like right after finishing the movie? And this can be after your first watch or after the 20th watch. This is probably like the third time I've seen this film. And to me, I was... Uh, <laughs> the only way I can describe it, <laughs> and I know I'm, I'm going to sound completely awkward, but... Emotionally speaking, I feel as if I just had a child. My hormones were everywhere. I had this pit in my stomach and it was just overwhelming. It, it feels like my body physically went through labor. Um, and, and it's, it's a tough, it's not an easy watch. There are a lot of scenes where I just couldn't watch them. I, I just turned away or just closed my eyes temporarily and just waited for the scene to be over. Oh, I know, I completely that. awkward answer. <laughs> no, that's, no, that's amazing. That's, that's as close as I get to comparing this. 
That's hilarious. Yeah, that's not what you typically hear on this podcast. Well done. Know, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> With medical ethics, labor. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I also felt like I'd just given birth after watching this film. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, yeah, in some ways, like it, it's it's like a it's like a painful experience, but at the same, and by the end, you get this sort of like joyous release, I guess. Which, having watched my wife give birth, is pretty much the best way to describe it, where she went through this incredibly painful experience. And at the end, she was like, oh, I'm so happy. And I was like, it kind of is with this, because it, it just, like, it grates you for a lot of the film. And, like, you're absolutely convinced that everything is going to go bad. And then there's just, like, these fleeting moments of optimism where you're like, okay, maybe it's going to be right. Maybe it's going to be right. Maybe it's going to be right. And, man, oh, I'm so happy that Guillermo del Toro put that little epilogue in at the end. Because if it just ended on that daughter, on the, you know, the young girl being shot, and that was the end. I, I, this movie would be the most depressing movie I've ever seen. I don't even care that the captain gets shot immediately afterwards. That, for me, is nowhere near the sort of justice that he deserves for what he's just done. Yeah, it's, it's joyous, but at the same time, it's like, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of like, how much did I lose of myself while attaining this victory? I guess it's the best way to describe it. <laughs> oh, man, those are so, such good answers. I don't think I can, can answer after that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair um, I think there's few movies um, when they're really good and I, they get that 99.99 score for me. I just feel so high, like in terms of like like a natural high, of course. But I don't know. Or it's so just, you say. <laughs> um, I just I, I feel like it's just kind of like a, a movie gasm, right? And I'm just like, oh my god, like that was just the best thing I've ever seen, and I want to go do something amazing. And like I don't know, I just feel like. Good movies do that to you, whether, I mean, yes, I feel like getting shot was pretty horrible and there's like, it isn't Spain and fascist Spain or whatever, but just the, I don't know, when it, when a movie works, it works and it, it, it just makes me so happy. And so I, you just like want to sit there for like five minutes and be like, what did I just see? That was the best thing ever. So that's how I felt every time oh, oh no i completely dig you i mean that like yeah it's, it's very rare that one of these films come along and then you watch it and you're just like oh my god i want to tell everyone about this this is so brilliant yeah <laughs> nice cool okay so i guess it's my turn sure is um my first question was probably going to be an obvious one but eh, here <laughs> it is anyway um where does this film rank in guillermo del toro's filmography yeah, I mean, this is first for me, obviously. When I yeah. give it a score of 9,999, it's impossible to even think of another one that's sort of up there. Like, I'm fond of Shape of Water. wasn't, like, the biggest fan of it. Um, a couple of his other ones, I'm trying to think, like, Hellboy and Blade 2 and stuff like that were, like, pretty good, you know, for me being a comic book fan sort of thing. And Devil's Backbone really enjoyed that. But, yeah, this one, yeah, this one's easily first. Oof. It's pretty hard because I, I love a lot of his movies. And, like, I love Pacific Rim. And then I love Hellboy. And then Blade 2 was also really cool. Like, who, like he did a superhero movie. Awesome. But I would say, I think in terms of nostalgia for me, because that's really big uh, for me, is I think this was the first one that I saw from some from Guillermo. And um, when I was first starting out in terms of like back in high school and watching movies and watching really good movies. And I think it was just kind of like a gateway to all these other really good movies too. And um, even before I knew who Guillermo del Toro was, like watching this movie, it definitely had an impact on, you know, my love of movies. So I have to say this one just because it, it's perfect and it's also very, um, it has a very special place in my heart. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. This is probably top del Toro for me as well. Okay. Next question. Was it risky for del Toro to show a death of a child? Oh, absolutely. 
but that but that being said, yes, it's risky because like it doesn't really happen. But at the same time, it's such a perfect fitting end to the story. And we already knew from that original scene where the um, captain basically beats a guy to death with a bottle. We're like, okay, this movie is not stuffing around. Like this movie is insane, and anyone can die at any point in this film. So. Yeah, I mean, risky, yep, but deserved, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it kind of irks me in other movies when everyone gets out alive when they shouldn't. It probably is one of the reasons why it blew me away back when I first saw it, um, because it was able to, he he took that, you know, he made that choice. Um, And then when I saw it again, I I think I had forgot that that happened. And I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, I was like, that's so cool. Like, it was awesome. I think the movie would have been completely different if she survived. Um, And it wouldn't have been as impactful. And then I also um, had read when he turned down Chronicles of Narnia, it's because he didn't want the lion to survive. And so that just tells you like everything of, of like what he, you know, you, you, you have to have stories of tragedy, especially like in these kind of he's setting it against the war and for someone not to die, especially children died in war. So I think it yeah. was it was so good. And it just kind of is like the benchmark of what he does later. So yeah, absolutely. Like, it almost becomes a question like if he hadn't have killed the young girl would like would people still be talking about this movie like yeah they would like it'd still be a really good film but it's like it's one of the reasons why it's just held in such high regard i think Mm -hmm. was just the fact that it had the you know like confidence to go out there and just do something completely different so yeah right i'm asking you because i've heard a lot of people who aren't particularly fond of seeing children die in films and if they automatically know a a child uh, dies they just refuse to watch the film um (laughs) i I was just no seriously i've heard a lot of people um say things like that so i was just curious um okay oh to me um definitely a risk but i didn't mind it as as a mom i don't mind it either last question which was your favorite performance I was going to say Ophelia, but after <laughs> your face of no, opinion. No, 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 no. <laughs> no uh, I mean, she she was up there for me because, like, um, like it's so easy for a child acting performance to be bad through mm-hmm. to like you know, there's very few that are great, but like I really enjoyed her. But all that being said, um, yeah, it's definitely the captain, uh, Sergio Lopez. Yeah, um, the captain Vidal. He was just ruthless. Just absolutely ruthless. And as I discovered in my research for this film, he's he's actually typically a comedic actor in other Spanish <laughs> mo- films and stuff like that. Oh, wow. And it's just, yeah. And so to give just such a horrible, horrible performance, like, yeah, phenomenal. I would have to agree with you because rewatching this movie many years later after like my last watch, I was just like, man, so good. Why haven't I seen him in other things? Because I don't know. And I think he also doesn't have like the classic sinister look, which if you can play someone who's just ruthless but it, you know you don't have to have that look it's it just even it makes it even creepier like even like scarier so sometimes like he would do moments of like oh maybe he's not so and then you're like oh no he is <laughs> with just like these <laughs> subtle facial expressions so i um yeah he was top notch yeah same here i think he was probably the best in this film yeah i hated him so much and um, to the point where i think he went easy his death was too nice for him um yeah. I think it should have gone out worse, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> that's just me. Don't mind me. Awesome. Cool. And that moves me over to my personal questions. So first up, because it's the most obvious one, and this one that gave me goddamn nightmares for or now 14 years <laughs> and running. Uh, aside from the pale man scene, what scene creeped you guys out the most? Um, I think just because I had forgot about it, the the one where he bashes him in with the bottle, because I was like, oh, 
I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I was like, that was insane. And that I, I even watching it, like I was in my couch, I like kind of jumped a little. I was like, oh, I was like, that's, it was just so brutal. It really was, it, it really sets the tone for who the captain is and it's mega creepy um, and I guess evil more so, but yeah. This is really horrible, but um, me and my wife sat down to watch this and she only managed to watch half an hour. Being a parent is tough. Um, but it's like <laughs> we were sitting there, we put it on and she was just like, so what's this film? I was like, oh yeah, so it's this like um, Spanish film directed by Grandma del Toro, you know, and she's like, oh cool, because she's not like a movie buff whatsoever. And then she was like, so what's the film about? I was like, oh, it's a fantasy movie. It's fine. It's, you know, just like, <laughs> she's like, oh, okay. And then just like 20 minutes in, I just turn around and she's like pulled the pillow up around her neck, you know, Aww. on the couch sort of thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Sorry. It's like a horror film as well. And she was just like, what the fuck am I watching? What is this? Yeah. He's like, that guy just had his face smashed in. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, is the rest of the movie like this? Like, is this a kid's film? And I was like, no, nah, it's not a kid's film. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I should have warned you. You should have watched it. <laughs> Poor Stacey. Um, to me, it was probably that frog. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh. yeah I, I wasn't really particularly fond of that frog. And then, like, uh, what what does it do? It, like, throws up or vomits, yeah, whatever <laughs> it does. I was like, oh, my shit. And I was eating while I was watching that. And <laughs> it just, yeah, no. Yeah, to me, it's the frog. <laughs> It spews up its entire innards, like everything, <laughs> and then just yeah. deflates. I was, like, it was funny for me because like the pale man scene is clearly overshadowed that scene. I completely forgot about like the frog and after, <laughs> after. And then when I was watching, I was like, "What the hell happens here?" Oh shit, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Next up, so yeah, one point. Well, throughout the film, Mercedes sort of toils with the idea about whether she should just kill the captain or not, and. And so she's had ample opportunity to sort of put her out of everyone else's misery, but uh, she chooses not to. And then later she's confronted by him and she managed to, you know, like free herself and then pull a knife on him, cut open his cheek, which is also an incredibly painful scene to watch. And then, <laughs> and then sort of slashes him and says, if you try and do anything to Ophelia or whatever, I'm going to come back and kill you. But she had the opportunity. She had the opportunity to kill him. So I want to know from you guys, why didn't she just kill him when she had the chance? Yeah, that one is a little, um, I don't know why she didn't, because obviously the doctor had just got killed before for doing mm. less of like, just, you know, or he didn't really know the full extent of that. But I, I don't know, she had him, like she had him so vulnerable and she could have just kept stabbing him and stabbing him. Um, but maybe she also didn't want to be a killer. I don't know. Maybe she just had some hope <laughs> that it would go the right way. <laughs> and also maybe sometimes I think also we get a little desensitized to how hard I mean, I've never killed anyone, <laughs> for the record. Um, but I can just—is it the FBI at your door? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think uh, in movies, it seems like really easy in some ways. And if you really put your put put yourself in those shoes, like I think it, it might have just taken too long. And maybe she was like, "I got just got to get out of here." Um, the shock of it, of that actually being able to do that, and yeah, I think it, I think when you think about it in that sense, it makes sense that she didn't do it all because she probably hasn't had experience stabbing someone and trying to kill them before um and then you just you're thinking like oh let me just i i i, I kind of subdued him so let me just get out of here um that's how i interpret it yeah i i'm probably gonna echo everything she just said uh i my answer was like because that's not who she is she's not a killer and at that time in that era also i don't know if if it's the mentality or, or what they're told but i don't think women are <laughs> are killers at all they're, they're not 
that's not what they're there for, unfortunately. And I hate saying this. It really leaves a sour taste in my mouth. But her job there is just to help him and, and, and cook and do what women, gender bias uh, women supposed to do. And killing is not one of them. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, that was like what I was thinking as well. I was like, she, it's, it's a good way of the movie showing that she's not as cold-hearted and ruthless as he is. And I think if, we, if they'd shown her just like murder him straight up there, it would have been just like sort of taking away a lot from her character. Although, yeah. although it does... Like, as you mentioned, she feels like she subdued him. It's like she maybe could have done a better job of subduing him, given yeah. that he comes running out <laughs> after the, about maybe, two maybe seconds compl- Yeah, maybe complete the Joker smile or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so the big question, the big question that a lot of people ask about this film, do you guys believe that the fantasy elements were real or do you think they're all hallucinations or like ideas or whatever in Ophelia's head? I think after watching this again... It it's awesome that I think you can interpret it both ways and it leaves it open to like an ambiguous kind of thing because I think he the way it's written and the way it's told it's just so perfect in that you I think in one way I would think that if you lived you had to live with this dude your mom's dying um you know the baby is going to kill her um you don't really have any hope of course you would want to escape um in your imagination but in the other hand like it it didn't really leave like I don't know there wasn't a very clear cut distinction because everything that he shows with the fantasy elements no one's there to really see them besides Ophelia and so it does make you wonder if it could be real I think depending on the day of the mood right maybe if you're a little bit more cynical you're like oh my life I want to escape somewhere and I'm like yeah she she just made it up to go in her own labyrinth and then other ways if I'm more on a sci-fi fantasy kind of kick I'd be like yeah that was that was totally true so I can't really answer it because I think I love the fact that it, it's just left open for interpretation. And I think that's also the brilliance of the movie. Yeah, same. I like that it's open to interpretation. Um, to me, though, I think it's all just in her head. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's just because for the same reasons that that were just mentioned right now, everything that she sees and she uh, encounters, it's when she's by herself. So to me, and even that, you know, children have imaginations and they just go out there. So to me, it was, me personally, I think it was just all in her head. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I obviously have mentioned about a hundred times this podcast, did some research to see what um, people think or well, even what Guillermo del Toro thought. And he's basically said that he put three things into this film which clearly identify the truth behind it mm. yeah he said that the flower blooming at the ends uh the chalk being found in the uh captain's drawer which sort of shows how ophelia's managed to go from the basement to the upper level of the house within space of a mm. second or whatever and i can't remember what the other thing was but he sort of said that that's been put in there to say it was but he also said like he wanted to make this ambiguous he wanted people to be have their own interpretation about it so yeah so that's the answer to that for me personally, I kind of I want it to be real because mm-hmm. I don't like the idea that some poor girl got murdered while clutching her brother. I'm just like, yeah. and that was your end. That was your end from her existence. I mean, yeah, sure, it happens in real life, but I mean, it's yeah. I just I, I don't know. I watch this optimistically. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, that takes us down to our final question, which is a listener question that we throw out there to you guys, our dear listeners, to answer for us. I will give your guys answers very soon, but first of all. I mean, if you get on the wonderful stars behind the podcast Latinx Lens, you've got to throw out a question that sort of plays to their senses. So this week's question was, what 
are your guys' top three films by Latinx directors? Oh, sorry, before we get into this, I know this is going to be like choosing children for you guys. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> It was for me as well. This was flipping hard. So I, yeah, this is just like three of many. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the one, obviously, Pan's Labyrinth is one of my favorites. Guillermo del Toro is one of my favorite just directors in general, not even Latinx. Um, I think he's amazing and so good in, in what he does. And then the other ones I chose are so apocalyptic and like horrible, but they're so good as movies, but heartbreaking. Um, Children of Men and City of God, which just I watched once and it broke my heart because it, that one we're talking about, you were talking about the kid, you know, the bold choice of like the kid uh, of Felia dying and City of God shows like reality of like the people, the little kids in the favelas and like what they have to do and all that kind of stuff. And that was very heartbreaking to me. But I think you have to show that stuff sometimes because then no one else will know. And the way they did it in that movie was, oh, it was so good. But also just it's not a good watch. <laughs> I mean, it's not like an exciting watch. <laughs> But afterwards, you do feel kind of like pit of your stomach, like, oh, that's very hard to swallow, but I'm glad I know it. And it was just a beautiful movie as well. Uh, I always wondered who my film clone was going to be out there in the wide universe, and I found her. Well done, Kat. Those are my Yay. three answers as well. Wow, oh, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I mean, like, Children of Men is just like, probably the film I'd rate slightly higher of this. It's probably my favorite film from the last 20 years. I just, mm-hmm. I just love Children of Men. Obviously, this one, love it. And yeah, City of God. What about you, Rosa? Yeah, well, to me, um, stand and deliver. <laughs> and if you have not heard the first two episodes, <laughs> yeah, this film is one of my favorite films of all time. And, and it just hits me dear to my heart. If you want to know why, just go listen to our episodes. Ha, <laughs> promo. Um, so, and then, <laughs> uh, my next one is, uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid. Uh, it was just recently released, um, by Isa Lopez and a lot of similarities with Pan's Labyrinth. But I think what I like more about, uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid is these children, these orphan children, they've been orphaned because of the, uh, the drug war and everything. Their parents have been killed. Uh, so they have to, they, uh, gather together and then they have to survive as a unit. And it just, everything they go through and then the horror aspect of it, it, it has a lot of Pan's Labyrinth in here. And she said a, a million times that Guillermo del Toro very much inspired her to do this film. But it's a film that has really stayed with me because it, it, it takes place in Mexico and everything that's going on over there. And it, I'm sure a lot of kids are currently going through this. So to see it on, on, on film was quite impactful and quite moving to me. And then my last one right there with you, speaking of children, children of men is also um, up there with me for the reasons you guys just mentioned. <laughs> Excellent. Cool, and that moves us over to our listener answers, which we will run through now and judge you guys accordingly. (laughs) First up is Emily Higgins from the Tasteless Podcast. She went with Machete Kills, The Good Girl and Disobedience. Uh, Steve from Everything I Learned from Movies Podcast went with Machete, Machete Kills, and preemptively, Machete Kills Again in Space. (laughs) I like those. I love Danny Thrill, and I think Rosa does too. I love him as well. I love that he, like, apparently whenever he plays, like, a bad character, like an evil character or whatever, he specifically petitions that the guy gets killed. Because he's like, I (laughs) don't want people watching this movie and seeing the guy and being, like, wanting to be like him. I want to make sure he dies in, like, a real horrible way. (laughs) I was like, that's that's awesome, awesome. Danny. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Good choices. Uh, Paul from the Countdown Podcast went with Children of Men from Dusk Till Dawn and City of God. Those are awesome choices, Paul. 
I made a joke about Paul, who was recently on the Total Recall. I made a joke about that, about whether you'd end it with a girl if she didn't like children and men. And that's exactly what happened. He took a girl on a date to see children and men. And he walked out and she said, that's the worst film I've ever seen. And he said, I'm never going to see you again. (laughs) Wow. I mean, that's a big deal, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you, Paul. Gerald from Two Peas on a Podcast, another great podcast that I am appearing on soon to discuss the top five greatest scenes in incredibly bad movies. He went with City of God, La Bamba, and Children of Men. Uh, La Bamba is one that mm. I wanted to bring up because I brought it up to you, Rosa. But when La Bamba came out in the late 80s, I would have been about five or six years old. And it came out of the movies. And then everyone in my tiny small town in New Zealand all knew La Bamba. Like we all knew the <laughs> song. We used to just stop each other in the streets and just start singing and dancing it to each other. Like we were like absolutely convinced to the point that I think it might have been one of the first movies I watched at the movies, maybe because I've oh, got no idea how the hell else I know all the songs. That's so cool. Or, it was it was weird. It was weird. Like this tiny town of like eight thousand people, and then there's just kids walking the streets singing La Bumba at each other. It was like, <laughs> it's just fascinating thinking about it now. Like if if somebody came over and just been like, "What the fuck are these people up to?" Like, <laughs> oh, I wish there was video footage of that. Oh, I don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> of us warbling through Spanish. No, I don't know why. I'd hate to see that. Yeah. Uh, the word salad radio went with Amores Perros, Shape mm. of Water, and Prisoner of Azkaban. Ooh, yes. About- mm. It is the best Harry Potter film. Uh, Glenn McGregor said Dust Till Dawn trilogy, The Revenant, El Mariachi trilogy, Rise of the Guardians. I think there's more than three films here, Glenn, but good on you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Daniel Berrios went with Birdman, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and Crimson Peak. Mm, good ones. Uh, Portrait of a Danny on Fire. Good name there, bro. Went with Children <laughs> of Men, Itu Mama Tambian, Tiger's Not Afraid, Devil's Backbone, Gravity, Roma. Again, more than three films. So we'll allow it. Just put Roma <laughs> in there, and I absolutely love Roma. Uh, 3D Yanez went with La Bamba, Birdman, and Gravity. B. Peterson went with Itu Mama Tambian, Stand and Deliver, Blind Spotting. Honorable mentions of Zoot Suit and basically anything Ooh. by Karan post 2000. Yes. Oh, Blind Spotting is very underrated. Very I don't underrated. think I've seen it. Really? Oh, my. Yes, you should watch it. Unfortunately, it's so relevant right now. But yes, it's a great, great, great film. Oh, good work there, Mr. B. Peterson. <laughs> and uh, who's next? Uh, Nerd Lantern of Sector 2814 went with uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, Desperado, and Hellboy 2. There's another bit of Guillermo love. Uh, Landy Calrissian went with Yitu Mama Tambian, uh, Embrace of the Serpent. Haven't heard of that. And then A Fantastic Woman. And finally, Julio of the Contrarians podcast went with A Place in the World. Good luck finding that anywhere, though. Um, I looked it up. It was a 1992 Argentinian film that he said came out in Peru in 1996. So, yep. <laughs> uh, and also Amores Peros and Pan's Labyrinth. Yay. Yeah. Yay. There we go. <laughs> Great one to end on. Well done, Julio. You're the man. But, uh, well, Julio's the man. These two are absolute legends. So thank you, you two, for coming on this podcast. Thank you for being so great. Thank you for being so awesome and just, well, just being yourselves, basically. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking about great things, why don't you guys tell us about your podcast and everything else awesome you guys do? Uh, make sure to just follow us on social media, follow uh, and listen to our podcast, Latinx Lens. It's where we talk about Latinx representation and contribution in the film industry. And 
Yeah, me, you can just find me on any social media platform um, platform at Rosa's Reviews. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at ThingsCatLoves. And I'm also the editor-in-chief at ShuffleOnline.net. So we shuffle movies, TV, music, wellness, all that stuff. So, um, yep. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like everyone that's ever heard me have guests on before. I don't bring people on unless I listen to their stuff or read their stuff or enjoy their stuff. So, I mean, yeah, it's like high recommend from me as usual. And we'll put links to your guys' stuff in the show notes. So coming up next week, we have an episode with Emily Higgins from the Tasters podcast on The Gentleman, the 2019 Guy Ritchie film. And then after that, Dan from the aforementioned Netflix and Squill will be coming on to do his favorite film of all time, Independence Day. Mm, Celebrate Independence yes. Day, I guess. And yeah, if you want to get in contact with us, you can find us on Twitter at Movie Reviews In. That's the place we are the most prolific. We also got a Facebook page that is pretty neglected, but we occasionally drop in there, which is just Movie Reviews and 20Qs. And you can send us an email at mritqs at gmail.com. Uh, once again, massive thanks to these guys. You guys absolutely brought it. Thank you so much. Cheers. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you Cheers. for having us. And goodbye. <laughs>